This podcast is brought to you by the Sydney Institute for Psychoanalysis. If you'd like to hear more audio lectures like this, head to our website, sydneypsychoanalysis.asn.au. The next event is in March 2014, Engaging with Psychoanalytic Ideas and Concepts, starting with a three-part lecture series presented by Dr. Louise Braddock, entitled A Conversation Between Philosophy and Psychoanalysis. There's more information and registration forms online at sydneypsychoanalysis.asn.au. Meet like-minded people and participate in the discussion. We hope to see you there. Now, an excerpt from Mind Delving into the Depths, a six-part series presented by Neville Symington. This excerpt is on the topic of what is psychoanalysis. I've had this habit when giving talks to um, put a quote up at the beginning The quote I'm offering at the beginning of this is, to regard as primary what is secondary is the root of all fallacy. And that comes from uh, a medieval mystic, uh, Meister Eckhart. He uh, made that statement. And I remember when I first read it, not all that long ago, a few years ago, it struck me as being absolutely true. I thought I'd just say something about... um, Uh, thinkers about psychological matters from earlier times. As you probably know, psychology broke off from philosophy when Wundt founded his psychological laboratory in Leipzig in 1879. And then there was also, as it were, a progressive division of philosophy from theology But I want to stress, really, that the mystics, people like Meister Eckhart within Christianity, Al-Ghazel within uh, Sufism, Moses de Leon within Judaism, and in the East, Mahavira and the Buddha, and so on, that there are two sort of aspects, I think. I think that's fair to say that's that's true of all of them. They started off with a, a reflection on the nature of existence, And then, as a result of that reflection, sort of began to work out a type of psychology of the individual. And to my mind, some of the things that uh, they have said have not been surpassed. A book, for instance, that I was uh, tremendously influenced by was um, Gershom Sholem's book, uh, Major Trends in Jewish Mysticism, and uh, where he explicates the, uh, the Zohar and the work of Moses de Leon and it's, it's profoundly uh, insightful psychologically. And so, for instance, one of the things that uh, Moses de Leon said was that the reason something is injurious to the personality, uh, it's not injurious in itself, but it's injurious because it's either isolated from the other elements in the personality or it's, as it were, linked to the other elements but in a, in a distorted way. And so therefore, when I read that, I was tremendously struck by that because it then struck me that when we talk about, say, something like greed or envy and so on, it doesn't mean that there's there something in itself that is um, corrupting, but it's because it's not in relation to the other parts of the personality. And so that, say, greed, because there's an isolation of this element from the other parts of the personality... When it comes into relation with the others, it becomes, say, confidence. 
So I just want to make that point, really, that there have been uh, great um, psychological insights uh, down through the centuries. And I'll just give you a quote from Aldous Huxley. This is uh, from his book, The Perennial Philosophy. He says, One of the most extraordinary, because the most gratuitous pieces of 20th century vanity is the assumption that nobody knew anything about psychology before the days of Freud. But the real truth is that most modern psychologists understand human beings less well than did the ablest of their predecessors. And then he quotes, he says, Fenelon and La Rochefoucauld knew all about the surface rationalizations of deep and discreditable motives in the subconscious and so on. So I just want to sort of um, say that as a sort of uh, opening and um, to come back to this thing that making secondary what is primary is the root of all fallacy. So I could say that that's one way of thinking of this talk, what's primary and what's secondary. Another division that... um, can be used is Kant made this distinction between what he called the noumenon, which was the actual substance of the thing, and then the phenomena, the way that the actual substance manifests itself. So it's the idea that uh, there can be one type of principle with very different type of manifestations. And for instance, uh, a writer who won the Nobel Prize for Literature said this, He says, I've noticed in my life deep resemblances between many different kinds of things. Writing a book is not unlike building a house or planning a battle or painting a picture. The technique is different, the materials are different, but the principle is the same. So it's like as if uh, this talk is try and get at, well, what is the the real sort of substance of what uh, psychoanalysis is? Now, if one thinks of psychoanalysis in this way, then the classic picture of the analyst seeing someone on the couch for 50 minutes, five days a week, uh, with interpretation as the agent of change, this is only one particular instance of a principle which has many other forms. So, for instance, we all know that psychoanalysis continues long after the formal process of patient visiting an analyst ceases. And as you probably know, Freud recommended uh, that um, people spend sort of half an hour at the end of the day sort of um, reflecting and uh, continuing their analysis uh, long after uh, they'd actually finished the quotes, the official sort of procedure. So if one once then recognizes that psychoanalysis is continuing the whole time, then one has to look for its definition in some different way, that the phenomena are the series of manifestations of the substance of the thing. But the way psychoanalysis is often spoken about in seminars for students and discussions in the IPA and the EPF for what constitutes minimum standards for psychoanalysis, for instance, The question of the couch is nearly always introduced, usually very often with an imperative that the patient should be invited to use it. Also, in IPA deliberations, the question of how many times a week constitutes analysis is a subject for ardent discussion, sometimes acrimonious. 
five times a week, four times a week, three times a week. These three options are usually accepted, though there's a reluctance to accept three times a week by many. When someone said, well, why not twice a week, uh, to a former president of the IPA, he reposted that this was just mocking, though three times a week seemed acceptable to him. But the question of quite, well, why, well, it was twice a week mocking and three times a week wasn't. So often this is um, how psychoanalysis is thought about, and it's practice based more upon a mode of definition of that kind. We're all familiar with cartoons which depict the patient on the couch with the analyst sitting behind with some humorous legend beneath. I remember one where the analyst says to the patient, of course you're depressed, I'm expensive. And this is, this is the outer clothing. It's the phenomenon, not the noumenon. It's secondary, not primary. So in this talk, I'm concerned to clarify what psychoanalysis is, to discover the noumenon. But I'll continue with other components that marry up with the first definition. I want to locate the substance of the thing. The substance of psychoanalysis is an inspiration capable of revolutionizing the world. But what is secondary, interpretation as the agent of change, length of sessions, frequency of sessions, these are secondary and inspire no one. Many have been through this outer process and remained unanalyzed. Others who've not been through the process have had very successful analyses. In this phenomenal way of conceptualizing psychoanalysis, the focus is not upon understanding but upon the instruments used to achieve that understanding. So in many a clinical paper it would seem that the transference is the goal rather than an instrument we use to achieve the goal. It's the same with those other instruments, interpretation as the agent of change, counter-transference, projection, denial, repression, displacement. An astronomer needs to spend time to make sure that his telescope is properly set up, but the object of his research are the stars and the planets, which the telescope helps him to see better. These analytic instruments just mentioned are equivalents to the telescope. And you may think I'm exaggerating, but I've heard too many talks that it's quite clear that it's thought that transference is the goal and not an instrument. The goal of psychoanalysis is to see and penetrate into the world of the two participants, analyst and patient. The telescope needs to be good so we can see clearly, but it is not to be worshipped as an end in itself. Now, I finished what I'll call <coughs> my formal analysis 35 years ago, but I've been in analysis ever since. And by the formal analysis, I mean visiting an analyst five times a week, 40 weeks a year for several years. The analysis ever since, which I'll call my true analysis, occurs internally within me and externally in relation to significant people. 
These people are alive to me and keep the analysis alive. These people may be physically dead, but they can be alive to one's own heart. And let me just tell you about one such person, the English writer George Eliot. I was reading her novel Middlemarch while on holiday in Spain 27 years ago, and I came to the passage describing the marriage between Lydgate and Rosamond. And Rosamond, if you've, those of you who know the novel, was a femme fatale. It's like a, an aside type of discussion uh, about Rosamond and um, Lydgate. So Lydgate married, uh, he was a doctor, married to Rosamond, who was a femme fatale, realized that his wife no longer loved him. And then George Eliot says the following. The first great disappointment must be born. The tender devotedness and docile adoration of the ideal wife must be renounced, and life must be taken up on a lower stage of expectation, as it is by men who have lost their limbs. But the real wife had not only her claims, she still had a hold on his heart, and it was his intense desire that the hold should remain strong. In marriage, the certainty she will never love me much is easier to bear than the fear I shall love her no more. Hence, his inward effort was entirely to excuse her and to blame the hard circumstances all on his own fault. Now, this opened up an understanding for me at the time that it was a greater disaster to cease to love than the pain of not being loved anymore. Perhaps it's an appropriate uh, sort of insight on Valentine's Day. George Eliot was alive to me at that moment. My relation to her bore fruit in a new understanding of the mind, of the spirit. My emotional life was enriched. This is one example, and down the years there have been many, many others. This is the true analysis of which the formal analysis was the gateway opening this new channel of revelation. Today I can say every day a new understanding develops. I'm in analysis. I'm saying this to emphasize that this analysis is conducted without an analyst, without what would be recognized as an interpretation, without a couch although I was lying on a sofa at four in the morning when I read that passage that I've just quoted, but with no 50-minute sessions. So all these do not constitute the substance of analysis. They are secondary. What is primary, what makes an analysis, is a relationship which fertilizes into understanding. And this is, uh, this is the analysis. And I'll give you another example. In um, 1979, I was reading a series of essays by Isaiah Berlin that were published in his book Against the Current. The focus in the essays in this book is upon those European thinkers who went against the tide, against the fashion of thought that was current at the time. One such thinker whom he discusses is Jean-Baptiste Vico, who was a philologist who taught at the University of Naples in the sort of transition between the 1600s to the 1700s. 
Vico had started off his professional life by being a faithful disciple of Descartes, who taught that we know best the natural world. But then Vico slid away from Descartes, and the whole Enlightenment belief that it was only the natural world and its principles that can be faithfully known, whereas man's own artifacts cannot be known with the same certainty as our knowledge of the natural world. But something happened to Vico, and whatever it was, it made an upheaval in his heart, and he suddenly said, no, Descartes is wrong. We know best that which we have created. And this was absolutely mind-blowing when I read it right back in 1979. First, what I read had complete conviction for me. It seemed quite a simple statement, but one that seemed so obvious that to refute it seemed absurd. If a photographer and a painter sat down in front of a lake surrounded by trees with some sheep and cows in a field to the left of the lake, and the photographer clicked his machine, and the painter then drew colors from his palette to create the reflection of the trees with the differing light, and the whole process took him five hours, I felt sure that the painter, rather than the photographer, knew that piece of landscape better than the photographer. I was at the time of reading this book of Isaiah Berlin staying in the coast near Port Phillip Bay, south of Melbourne, and perchance spending some time painting different seascapes. And I knew that what I was seeing when I was creating through painting much better than when on a previous occasion I'd clicked the camera. So this statement of Vika's was a revolution in my mind. My mind would never see be the same again. And shortly after this upheaval of mind, the thought came to me very quickly that if I can only truly know that which I have created, then if the aim of psychoanalysis is to know myself, which I believe is essence, then to know myself I had to create myself. That there were events in my life that were lying there dead in my mind and that I needed to create them if I was truly to know them. Later, this insight illuminated for me Beyond's formulation of alpha function, which I understood was this creative factor which Vico had taught me in so arresting a fashion. I realized then that Beyond had a long series of previous mentors down the corridors of history. So, These are two examples of an analysis in progress, and they weren't just uh, intellectual understandings. They had an emotional effect upon me, and I saw my intimates and also relation to organizations in there in a different way subsequent to that. It was a, a potent happening. Thanks for listening. To download the full talk, visit us online at sydneypsychoanalysis.asn.au.